Okay, let's get going through this. Many of you have not been here over the summer, so I'm going to try and catch you up here where we are in the book of Ruth. We got Ruth this week, Ruth next week, and then we're going to spend a really long time in 1 Corinthians where it is wild. You think, you think what's going on now is wild and crazy? The book of Corinthians is a good time to talk about things going wild and crazy, especially in the church. But today our focus is Ruth. Okay, so we have a family, we have Naomi and we have Elimelech, and they have two sons. There becomes a, a famine in the land of Israel, and they make the very poor decision to go off to the land of Moab because they heard things were better there. And they went to the place where these people were the sworn enemies of God. And over time, Elimelech dies, and the two boys who had gotten married, they die as well. And so now you have this lady named Naomi who has these two daughter-in-law, and they're pretty much destitute. They have, they have no land, they have no place, they have no food, they have no money. So Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Well, one of the daughter-in-laws, Orpah, she decides to stay there. But one, Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And when they get back, Naomi uh, is greeted by the people in not a very nice way, not a very friendly way. And she says, I don't even actually want you to talk to me. I'm, I've changed my name tomorrow, which means bitter. Well, because they were destitute for food, Ruth decided to go out and to go to work. And she gleaned in the field. And this is a key term used in Scripture. Because in the Old Testament law, God had told people they were to leave food behind in the field for the widows, for the orphans, for the poor, for the press, for the sojourner, for the wanderer, so they could come through their field and have sustenance. So Ruth is out in her widow's garments in the field, and she is eventually noticed by Boaz as she is working. And Boaz just continually shines as this this incredible example to, to all men of how we should treat, how we should move toward, how we should act toward women, how we should just act toward people in general, because we see this wealthy Israelite man inviting this widow, this Moabite, this poor oppressed woman, not, not just into his field, but all the way into his table. I mean, the very heart of Jewish society was the table. And he invites her in, and he feeds her to the point of being completely satisfied. And then he allows her to take home all the grain that she had gathered. And it is in this moment, this moment of kindness and overwhelming generosity and, and, and gratitude or, or loving kindness that Boaz does toward her, that Naomi is radically transformed and she praises God. And she says, because God in his covenant love and his has said, as we have talked about, in his loving kindness and his steadfast love, he has not forgotten the living and the dead. And from there, she says, all right, Ruth, it is time to go to the next step of this journey and this adventure. And it is time for you to get a man. All right. She said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take off your widow's garments. You're going to go take a bath. You are going to put on some perfume. You are going to put on some nice clothing. And tonight, while Boaz is at the threshing floor and his belly is full of grain and wine, you are going to sneak up on him in the middle of the night. Again, like I said last week, this is terrible dating advice. If anyone ever tells you to do this, do not listen. They are not your friend in any way, shape, or form. So she sneaks up in the middle of the night. She uncovers his feet. She snuggles up next to him. 
And Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? And she's like, I am your servant, Ruth. Marry me. I mean, can you just imagine? Can you imagine being a dude laying in the, on the ground asleep and some woman just crawls up at your feet and says, my name's Ruth, I want you to marry me, all right? That's exactly what this guy is dealing with at this moment. And he's an honorable dude. He doesn't take advantage of the situation in any way, shape, or form. And he says, all right, this sounds like a really good idea. The, the problem is I am not first in line to be your redeemer. And that's going to be our key word for today, all right? If there is anything you remember, it is going to be this word redeemer. It is found either in the noun firm, noun, noun form or the verb form uh, 10 times in our 12 verses today. So let me show you the big idea up here on the screen. If you're taking notes, this is where you shall begin. Uh, no, that, I thought you got the first part. I can give you the first part. Oh, he's giving me the scratch. Like apparently that didn't make it into the thing. Well, I'll just read it for you. The kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to various laws of the Torah, and the word Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the kinsman redeemer is a male relative according to various laws of the Torah, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. So I'm going to explain to you very briefly the four basic duties of a kinsman redeemer because you need this background to understand what is taking place in this story today. Duty number one is this. He was to buy his kin out of bondage, usually brought about when someone went into debt and indentured himself to another Hebrew. Now, the idea here is that of indentient servanthood. This is a lot of times what is called slavery in the Bible. And it's not the type of slavery that we normally think of as, as chattel slavery, which is the great stain upon our country. But it is more this, if you borrowed money and you went into debt and you couldn't pay your debt, there was no bankruptcy court just to go, all right, you don't have to pay this back you actually had to then go and work off that debt to whom you had borrowed the money from. And the responsibility is this in Scripture from Leviticus 25, 47 through 49. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So there are a lot of ways to accomplish redemption in, in this first duty. The second basic duty the kinsman redeemer had was he had the duty to buy back tribal land that a relative had sold. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall, allow, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. One of the great misunderstandings we just have about the Bible in general, especially the Old Testament itself, is this idea of property rights. Property rights is a really big deal to God. It's a really big deal in the Old Testament law. And it's a really big deal trying to explain and figure out how a lot of things are taking place within the Old Testament. God wanted the land of Israel to stay within the clans of the land of Israel. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Point number three, the kinsman redeemer had a duty 
um, to perform the Leverite law by marrying a widow in the family who had no male heirs and produce a progeny for the dead husband. Deuteronomy 25 says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. So here you see the serious seriousness and the importance of this concept. So much of the idea of having multiple wives in Scripture was not done in the way Solomon did it in having 700 wives, all right? We see how bad that turned out for Solomon along the way. But this idea of the Leverite law was because God had this great desire that the land of Israel stay within the clan of Israel. And this is why the scribes and the teachers of the law try to trick Jesus at one point in the New Testament. When they say, hey, Jesus, we have a question for you. Let's say there's a guy and he gets married and he dies. So she goes and she marries his brother. Well, he dies. And this happens on to the seventh brother. Uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, no one, because everybody's really scared of her because they all die. No, that's not what he says, right? What he says to her is, or what he says to them is, uh, you guys have it all wrong. There actually is no marriage in the resurrection. For me, the most disappointing verse in all of Scripture, because I love my wife and I want to be with her forever. It's going to be super weird not being married to my wife in heaven, you know? I mean, just think about, oh, I'm going to go up to her and just go, hey, buddy, hey, pal, what's up? That was a good 50 years on earth, right? It's going to be totally weird not being married in heaven, right? I know, I've totally rabbit trailed. shouldn't have said this. Okay, but anyway, so point number four for the kinsman redeemer. Y'all, you're going to be thinking, what? I'm not going to be married in heaven? See, I've ruined the whole thing. So he was to avenge the blood of a relative. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Pastor Kevin did when we uh, were in the book of Joshua. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood, the kinsman redeemer, shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. So what we see here is this idea of the kinsman redeemer. The big idea is this idea of justice. It's this big idea of rescue. It's buying back what has been lost, what has been stolen from someone else. All right, Keep that as your big idea. With that understanding, these four points of kinsman redeemer, we're going to come back through those. Let's jump into the text. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. 
And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I want to point out something here in the very first verse, and we'll pick it up as we go through the story, um, because it's really interesting how they translate this word. It says, turn aside, friend. I wonder why the translators translated it this way, because that, that's actually not what the text says. And, and we think it is the narrator who's telling the story. This is really like, a, a, this is a, a, a diss. I mean, this is like a, a very, um, he, he's kind of shaming this guy. The, it, it's, a, it, it's a mnemonic device in Hebrew, and it's like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. Hey, like, hey, Mr. Such-and-such. So, Mr. No-name, right? Like, because this guy, the way he acts, it's not even worth his name being mentioned in the scriptures, okay? Boaz is not actually calling him friend. He's calling him Mr. No-Name, okay? And so, so they, want, they want you to feel this, and you feel this more in the Hebrew than you do in the English. And so what he does here, he, he, he does how they would con, uh, conduct business back in the day. You know, a lot of times we go to the, uh, we sign contracts in, in board meetings and in rooms and uh, now over the internet, the electronic signatures, well, here, what they would do is they would gather 10 men of the city, 10 elders of the city. They did business at the city gate where everyone went in and out. And he says to the Redeemer, hey, you are first in line to buy this piece of land. And uh, at first, this guy sees a good opportunity, right? I mean, man, they've just come off the harvest. He's probably got money in his pocket. He's got, he's got some extra change. It's been, it's been a good year. And he sees this opportunity to have this good piece of land, this, this good field. And, um, you know, it's only got Naomi attached to it. So he's, she's past the birthing years. So he didn't have to worry about any of the inheritance stuff. And he's like, man, this is a really good piece of land and a really good piece of property. I will take it. And then Boaz throws in the catch, right? He says, Oh, by the way, whenever you do redeem this, no, it also comes with a Moabite widow. And at that point, the guy goes, mm, this would not go well for me. This will not go well for me and my family. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because you... you, you you need to put yourself in the place of Mr. No-Name, Mr. Such-and-Such, Mr. So-and-So. Because he first sees this opportunity and he says, ah, I'm going to jump on it when it was going to do nothing but benefit him and his family. But let's imagine for a moment, because we don't know exactly his situation, let's imagine he and his wife have a couple of kids, they have a boy and a girl. Well, let's say he takes this piece of land and he marries Ruth and he performs the Leverite law and he produces a male heir with Ruth. What happens now to the inheritance? It gets split, right? Between the two boys. And maybe his chunk of land was way bigger than Naomi's piece of land, so why would he put his own family in jeopardy by bringing about this son. But let's imagine another situation. 
What if he only has daughters? And what if through Ruth, he gets a son? Guess where all the land, all the property, all the inheritance goes? It goes to the line of Elimelech and away from him. So you can understand from, a, from just a cost analysis perspective, he made the right move. From, from a very practical, pragmatic perspective, he makes the right move. The move that all of us would make if we knew we were putting our entire future and inheritance at risk. But there's one major flaw in his thinking. In doing so, he becomes disobedient to a direct command of God. And this is why his name does not appear anywhere in the Scripture. This is why he is Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Such-and-such, Mr. No-name. And so in deciding to protect his own interests, and not considering what the Word of God says, what does it end up costing him? His name never even being mentioned in Scripture. Him not producing the heir that would eventually bring about the Messiah. It cost him more than a piece of land and some money and some inheritance for his children. Now, we need to apply this to us because this man chose that he would bring as little disruption to his life as possible rather than being, being obedient to God's commands and what God had called him to do. And since we're using a lot of financial terms here and I'm using the word cost frequently, I, I want to associate this with, with giving, right? Because... Um, I mean, you know, if you think about giving in the Old Testament, we always hear the word tithe, right? And we all, if you've been raised in the church or around the church, you, you know that word means a tenth of something. It means 10%. But if you actually look, if you take all the tithe into consideration, where all the tithe is supposed to go in many different areas, scholars have calculated, I've seen anywhere between about 25 and 27% of your total income. And you're like going, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, wait till you graduate and get a job, and you're going to see what a lot is, all right? Um, that's a lot. And then, and so in today in the modern church, we often talk about the tithe. We also talk about 10%. But, I mean, did you know, like, really the tithe is only ever talked about one time in Scripture? Like, 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 like Jesus, one time in the Gospels, is getting onto the Pharisees because how they're, they're squeezing everything out. I mean, they're, they're tithing down the littlest bit. And he says, and, and, and you should tithe. But yet, beyond Jesus and the instruction to the church, um, there's something much more than the tithe that tithe that that Scripture talks about. And if you've never read it, and I would encourage you to read it, it's found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'm just going to give you the four principles from it. But Paul says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you should give in four ways. You should give regularly. You should give generously. You should give joyfully, and you should give sacrificially. So you should give regularly, generously, joyfully, and sacrificially. Now, let's put ourselves back into the situation of this man. Giving in this way doesn't make a lot of fiscal sense, right? 
with as tight as money is, as hard as it is to make money, with the government taxing so much money, with as expensive as it is for housing and for cars and for children and, and, and all those things, you know, to raise a, ch- a child just 18 is a minimum of a quarter million dollars these days. I got four of them. And a Great Dane. It's expensive. Giving regularly, joyfully, generously, sacrificially doesn't make a lot of sense. But let me say this to you. And this is a principle that's absolutely true. God can always do more with 90% than you can ever do with 100%. If you choose to be disobedient in your life in the area of giving, you will be Mr. No Name, Mr. Such and Such. That's the risk you run because God has commanded us to give in this way. And man, I can just tell you, I mean, God is so good in giving. I could tell you stories upon stories upon stories. And I'll just tell you one. There was a time in my life when I was a missionary in Africa. God put it on my heart to give an entire month's salary away. And I wasn't making a lot of money in Africa, let's put it that way. A month's salary is a lot of money. And shortly after that, my, uh, my, my job was being terminated because my country went into civil war. And before that, I came home, I got a call from my parents that said, hey, the company you used to work for after you graduated college um, uh, called us and told us they had a check for you. And I was like, what? And I called them up and they said, yeah. Um, and this was like two weeks after I gave all this money. They said, yeah, the federal government audited your position in our company. And they decided in the two years that you worked for us, we did not pay you enough money. We have a check for $8,000 that we need to send to you. That was more than 10 times what I gave away. Have you ever in your life heard of the federal government auditing a public company, one position, and saying, you didn't pay this guy enough money? I can tell you story after story after story after story after story of God's faithfulness in our And I will just say to you, if you do not make it a habit of being a giver, giver, you are robbing yourself of the greater blessing. Because Jesus says it is more blessed to give than receive. And if you as a believer don't give, I know you're not thinking this is what you're saying, but this is what you are saying. You're saying Jesus is a liar. Because you don't have the faith to believe that it's a greater blessing to give than receive. You don't believe that God can do more with 90%, 80%, or 70% than you can ever do with 100%. Our attitude in giving, our willingness to be obedient to Scripture in spite of how uncomfortable it may be, of how much sense it may not make to the world, of, of how much disruption it might bring to our lives, Our decision to be obedient has everything about who we are as followers of Jesus. This is not just about giving. This is is so much bigger than that. I am telling you this as one who is 45 years old, double the age of many of you, 
And one day when you're double the age of all your college students, and you see all these people, it's a weird thing because it just seems like the other day that I was at college. I am just telling you, I do not want you to miss out on the greater blessing. If you want to see God move in powerful ways in your life, be obedient to his calling and his command to give. Mr. So-and-so missed out on the greater blessing because he considered what it would cost him financially rather than what it would cost him to not be obedient to God and his instruction. Count the true cost. Jesus challenges you in that. He says, before you follow me, count the real cost. It's hard to take up your cross and follow me. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he took off his shoe. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, I mean, just, just think about this. He is not thinking about himself in any way, shape, or form. He is thinking about a guy he's, he may have never even met in giving that guy a great name. He is not worried about his own name. And now why is Boaz's name great? Because he was not worried about his own name. He was worried about the name of God and being obedient to God and bringing glory to God. And because he lived in that way, in that manner, in that fashion, God gave him a great name. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What an amazing story. What an amazing three blessings the town of Bethlehem pronounces upon Boaz and upon Ruth. And if you're not careful, like you miss it. But it's like, hey, we want you. We, we pray for you. That in the same way that through Jacob, Rachel and Leah brought about the nation of Israel. We want you to go and to be a blessing. May you be that fruitful in your life. They say, Boaz, continue to act worthily so that you will be renowned. They they knew what Boaz was doing. They, They saw what a great commitment, what a great sacrifice this was, that now the inheritance will be passed on to someone else's line. And they say, may your name be renowned. But what I think is absolutely fascinating, and I've never heard until I saw this this week, when they say to him, 
And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is one of the craziest stories in the Old Testament. And there are crazy stories in the Bible. This is as crazy as it, as it gets. A woman dressing up as a prostitute, tricking her father-in-law into performing Leverite marriage. I mean, it's crazy. Genesis 38, go read it. I mean, again, you, like people are crazy, all right? Like, it's not just people today. People have always been crazy, okay? And this is, it's a crazy story. But the reason, you know why they give that blessing? Do you know why they give that blessing? And say, we, we want you to be fruitful like Tamar? Because this whole town came from the line of Tamar. They came into existence, this whole people group, because of Leverite marriage. When men were being disobedient, a woman went to incredible lengths to be obedient to what God had said about Leverite marriage. This whole people existed in a, because of a union just like this. And because of that union, they existed. This is a very special and touching moment. This moment means so much to them as an entire group of people that Boaz would do this. They, their hearts go out to Ruth the Moabite because they are the products of Leverite marriage. And it is through all that chain, all the way down, that the Redeemer comes. Now, I, I, I want you to see this, okay? Because now, now we're going to transition out of this story into this big picture of Redeemer, this big, massive picture of redemption. Because this story of Boaz and Ruth, it is a picture of the gospel, it is a type of gospel. It is what we call a, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Is that, you know, and I always love that image of foreshadow. And you're playing hide and go seek as a kid. And, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to find somebody and you can see they're hiding up against the wall and the light hits just right. And what do you see before you go around the corner? You see their shadow on the ground. So you can see the shadow before you see the substance. And so in this moment, in the book of Boaz, in this story of Boaz and Ruth, we, we see the shadow, and in Jesus, we see the substance. That's why we say he is the fulfillment. So he fills in the shadow. He fills in and completes the picture for us in this. But God has been in this story, been in the world working as a redeemer since the fall. I mean, the whole Exodus story is this massive story of God's people being sold into slavery and the kinsman redeemer, the redeemer comes along and redeems them out of their situation. If you want to know one of the defining attributes of, of Yahweh, of, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it is that of redemption. Isaiah 41.14 says, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And I want to show you those four basic duties of the kinsman redeemer that we looked at, how Jesus perfectly completes and fulfills everyone. God wove all of this instruction into the Old Testament law, into our lives so that we could see it ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So you remember his first priority or the first duty we talked about was to redeem his kin from bondage. 
Look at what it says in Romans 7, 14 through 25. Paul speaking to the church in Rome. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Sold to what? Sold under sin. We have been sold as slaves to sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so let, let me say to you, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you are not a, a believer yet, you, you understand this. If you're a believer, you understand this as well. But to you who are not yet believers, you understand there are things in your life that you want to do. There are, there are things that are bothering your conscience. There are sins that you know that you are committing that you no longer want to do, but you can't stop yourself from doing it. And the Bible says the reason is because you've been sold as a slave to sin. And the only avenue of true redemption and true rescue is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So your only option today to get out from under that sin, to get cleansed from that sin, to be released from that sin, is to give your heart and your life, to put your faith and trust to repent of that sin, and to believe solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross for your sins so that you can be redeemed because that is what He has done. He has bought you back with His own blood. Look at 1 Peter 1, 18-19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you. Church, this is for you. I want you to listen to this. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. Now, who is Peter talking to? Peter is talking to the Jewish people, right? He is talking to the house of Israel. And he is telling them, you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Church, this is what we rejoice in, that Jesus Christ Himself, our big brother, as Hebrews 2.11 says, our kinsman redeemer, He came. The only one who could came. He pays the price. He pays the atoning sacrifice by absorbing the penalty that we deserve, by substituting Himself upon the cross, making atonement for our sin, so that He could buy us back from the penalty of sin, death, and hell and being sold as slaves to sin and being under the power and the condemnation of the devil. 
Each and every day when we walk around, we walk in that freedom because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The second duty of the kinsman redeemer was to claim an inheritance for his people. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're probably not at the point where you're even thinking about inheritance yet. Your, your parents aren't at the age where you're like, hey, I wonder how much inheritance I'm going to get quite yet, okay? Um, I, I, I always tell parents, having pastored in the Northwest in a church that went from birth to 92, um, I said, hey, you know, don't, don't, don't bother saving things up for your kids because you think they want them. If they tell you they want it, give it to them. If not, just go ahead and get rid of it. Because I can just tell you, the, the moment you pass away, your kids, kids are just going to sell all your thing in a garage sale that was sentimental to you, right? And that's just how it goes. I mean, these, these inheritances, they just, they just perish, that they fade. I mean, just think about what's going on in Afghanistan right now, right? All these people who have built all these lives and all these homes in one swift moment with the Taliban rushing in, all of this family treasure stored up in certain places have been decimated. These people have now left everything. Everything they had had as their hope for their inheritance is gone. And so these situations happen regularly throughout the world. Stock market crashes, jobs are lost, bad health, medical bills. Inheritances can be lost in, in, in an instant. That's why they vanish. They moth and rust destroy them. Jesus says, don't depend on those things. Don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up treasure in heaven. Why? Because church, look, this is our inheritance. Having money is here. I mean, having stuff is here. I mean, it's fine. It's good. It's okay to have things, but it is not our ultimate inheritance. The first part of our financial, everything that we have is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you. 25% of all Jesus talks about in the gospels, if you don't know, is about money and possessions. Why? Because it is the thing that often hooks us and holds on to us and causes us to make really practical, pragmatic decisions that will cause little disruption to our life rather than being obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should not live that way. Why? Because we know there is a better inheritance than anything we could ever have in this life because by the precious blood of Jesus, an inheritance is waiting on us that it will not perish, it cannot be defiled, it will never fade, it is right now being kept for you in heaven, and as you do good in this life, it piles up more and more and more and more, and it is being guarded, not by some bank vault, not by some um, somebody trying to keep you know uh, hackers off of, of the blockchain from taking your money and running away with it. It is being guarded by God himself, and he says, build this treasure all of your days. Because one day this will be revealed to you. And the awesome thing about it is we're going to take it and we're just going to throw it at the feet of Jesus. We're just going to throw it at the feet of Jesus. 
Number three, the kinsman redeemer was to raise up children in the deceased name. Leverite law, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Church, Kevin and I often talk about sonship, being being sons, being, being a child of the King. When you become a parent, the gospel becomes so much more. Some of you right now are struggling and you are struggling with, does God really love me? Does God really care about me? Even though you are screwing your life up in spectacular ways. Even though there are going to be weekends here over the coming semester, you are going to put yourself in positions and do things that you would never tell your mom or your dad. God still loves you like crazy even on those days. He might kick your butt in the process, but he loves you like no other. And it it is so hard to explain. I mean, I did not get it until I became a parent for children. And it's like even, I mean, like there are, and we homeschool. Okay, we run three businesses from our house. We homeschool our four kids. I mean, we never leave our kids. Sometimes it feels like a bad decision because it is hard. I mean, I, I, I will bet you this last week, I heard the word stop at least 200 times. And that is no exaggeration. And I still love them. Though uh, there were times where if there were no consequences, they would probably cease to exist at this moment. I had this incredible, crazy, favorable love for them that I just cannot explain. And yes, you can have that kind of love and have thoughts of rage and beatings and all these things flowing through your and all the parents are like mm, I mean they like they get it and you will get it and it's and it's weird that you can have both of these things happening at the exact same time but there but that love that steadfast love that has said that we have talked about overrides all of it now it may result in discipline in our lives that we need to be disciplined we need God to mold us and shape us and correct us. But he does this because we are children. We were the enemies of God. You are not a Christian. You are the enemy of God, as the Scriptures declare. But you have been brought from the state from being an enemy to being a child, to being brought to the throne room of grace, that Hebrews would be so bold to tell us to boldly approach the throne of God. I mean, you've got to think in the, in the Hebrew mind, in the Jewish mind, when this is being written, to be told to approach the throne of God when the Holy of Holies, when, when the curtain was there, to think that they would have this immediate, direct access to walk into God's throne room and make a personal request. I mean, it would have been so awe-inspiring. It would have been hard for their minds to even grasp. And yet we treat this so casually that we would just go up and just make request, which you can because God has given you permission and has commanded you to do. But it should be the most, it should be one of the most mind-blowing things about our walk in this life as followers of Jesus 
that we can boldly make a request of dad who rules and reigns the universe any time we want to. That should leave us in awe and wonder. The fourth duty was to serve as a blood avenger. Jesus is presented to us as the lion and the lamb. The first time that he came, he came as the lamb. He was the sacrificial lamb offering himself for the sins of the world. When he returns from his throne on high, he will not return as the lamb. He will not return as sweet, soft, cuddly Jesus with product in his hair who looks all nice and neat and presentable for everyone. The Bible says that when Jesus returns as the lion, this will be what the world and us see. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, there is coming a day when Jesus will wipe out the enemies of the world. There is coming a day where we will know nothing but purity and holiness and righteousness. We will get to experience what those in heaven are now experiencing. We will get to experience on the new in the new heaven and the new earth what Adam and Eve experienced before they brought sin into the world. Because Jesus will make the world like his wine press with the blood of his enemies. I know that we don't often talk about Jesus in this way. People don't want to think about Jesus in this way but you need to understand this is the penalty for sin. This is how horrible sin is in the eyes of a pure and holy God who is perfectly set apart from all sin, who is perfectly holy, who is perfectly righteous. That was you. You would have experienced that if not for being bought by the blood of Jesus if not by being washed over. See, rather than your blood being spilled, He spilled His blood for you. He spilled His blood for the sins of the world. So that you're no longer in fear that way, but you're in fear of the awe of this holy God who would step down from His throne 
and offer himself for you. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And we, as the people of God, we are called to be redeemers. The call to go out and to rescue widows and orphans didn't stop in the Old Testament. Remember what James said. True religion, true Christianity, is people who go out to take care of widows and orphans, who visit the sick, who visit those who have been imprisoned in the name of Jesus. The seed I want to plant into your life today is how will you set your heart on the path of redemption this semester? It's okay that you're here to get a degree in something, but that's not your main purpose. Your main purpose is to be a redeemer. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, we are all called ministers of reconciliation. That's why we exist. Your first and primary purpose is to be a minister of reconciliation in this world. Because we have been reconciled to God through Jesus.